But then the disciples were left with a message, wait in Jerusalem. Unique to Luke, because in the other Gospels, the disciples go north to Galilee, but Luke, for theological reasons, has them stay in Jerusalem. And what was it they were waiting for? Do you remember? Yeah, to receive power, to receive the Holy Spirit. And so as we turn to chapter 2 now, we turn to the story of Pentecost, which has got to be, I mean, let's face it, we don't know all the Bible stories, right? Uh, if you're like me, you know some of them. Uh, but this is one of the ones we're familiar with, and for good reason. We celebrate it every year. Uh, it is one of the most significant events in the history of the church. And what have we been taught? What's the significance of Pentecost for the church? The beginning. The beginning. It's the birth of the church. Uh, which is true in Christian tradition. And we got all this symbolism. We got a mighty wind. We got the Holy Spirit that descends. We have tongues, not tongues of fire. Tongues as of fire. It turns out there's actually a distinction there. They divide. They rest on each individual that's there. And all of a sudden, the barriers of language which have existed. You remember in the Bible where language got confused? Yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of the reversal of the Babel story. So uh, early in the Bible, language comes in as an issue. People cannot communicate. Barriers come up. And here for the first time, uh, with lots of symbolism, the barriers come down. And then there's some delightful language throughout chapter 2 to describe how people reacted. Do you remember without looking at it what their response was? Oh, goody. No, they didn't say oh, goody. Uh, amazed astonished, bewildered, and perplexed. So obviously there's some stuff going on that's difficult for them to comprehend. And they're trying to make some sense of it. And then you got to love the rationalist in the group, right? I'm always one of those. We've got to have a rational explanation. Do you remember the explanation? They're drunk. They're drunk. Okay. Uh, and I love Peter's answer. No, not yet. Too early in the morning. Come back in three hours. We'll be so out of there. But... You know, this early in the morning, you're not going to catch us drunk yet. And then there's that question that this kind of hovers over the whole story. And this, of course, is the most important thing in the story. The question that, that, of interpretation. What does it mean? You've got all this profound symbolism going on, all this, this action going on, um, stuff that is just confusing and perplexing people, and they're trying to make sense of it. And then the question kind of hovers there. You know, what in the world is this all about now as Christians we commemorate Pentecost now I was a Baptist growing up we didn't celebrate anything that's just the nature of the Baptist you know? <laughs> yeah didn't hurt, never heard of a Lent or Advent or anything but most of us we celebrate uh, Pentecost as a, a holiday in the Christian calendar and traditionally what we're taught within the Christian context is Pentecost is the story of the beginning it is the story of the birth of the faith Jesus ministry is coming to a close this is now the story of the church. And so Acts will now go forward with that story. Uh, it's easy to forget there were no Christians there that day, right? Okay, they're all what? They're all Jews. The word Christian is anachronistic at this point. And they're not only Jews, they're in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is ground zero for Judaism. And they're at the temple. And guess what? It's a Jewish holiday. And so everything about the story really is seeped in Judaism. So the people who are in the story, who are experiencing this, would not have perceived it the way that you and I perceive it after 2,000 years 
of Christian tradition that's been laid on top of it. You know, we've got to kind of peel that back a little bit. Uh, the people gathered there in the temple that day, and by the way, uh, this is one of those little myths that occur in the church. Where did Pentecost occur? Do you remember? The upper room? Nope, it didn't happen. That's tradition. We're going to look at that kind of thing. Uh, how do you fit 120 disciples and 3,000 converts into a room? Yeah. Uh, that's a myth, and it's based on an earlier passage back. Remember, remember when we had to replace Judas with Matthias? He was such a great guy, we never hear him of him ever again. Uh, <laughs> they're in the upper room, and then chapter 2, they go to the house, which is a bad translation of a, of a Greek word. But we assume that the house is the same as the upper room. So there's a place in Jerusalem you go to, right, that was built in 1300 and something A.D., <laughs> you know, and never mind, we won't go down that road. Okay, uh, it's, and it's not, um, they're not gathered that day because they're Christians. They're not even gathered that day because they're expecting that this will be the day that what Jesus told them to wait for will be fulfilled, although there may be, there may be some, something to that. Everything that Luke describes would have been seen in an entirely different light from the way you and I would read the story today. So, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. By the way, it's been a Jewish holiday for a thousand years. So it's not late-breaking news. You know, what do the Jews do every single Pentecost for hundreds of years? They go to Jerusalem to celebrate this Jewish festival. It's one of the three great pilgrimage festivals of the Second Temple Judaism. They are required by law. If you're, if you're a male and a Jew and you can physically pull it off, you're required by law three times a year to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to present yourself before the Lord. So we find here in Leviticus 23, this is, it says, uh, I'm summarizing a paragraph. After you've done with Passover, you shall count off seven weeks. Can you do that? Seven weeks. So how many days are we talking about? 49 days, okay. They shall be complete. No cheating, okay? No fractions of weeks. Seven sevens is 49. You shall count until the day after the seventh Sabbath. So now to what would you have? As it says in the text, 50 days. Then you shall present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So what kind of a festival is it? It's a harvest festival. It's one of two harvest festivals. Um, now, if you're a Hebrew-speaking Jew, Palestinian Jew, it's called Shavuot, which means the festival weeks, uh, because how do you calculate it? Seven weeks. So it's the festival weeks. Now, if you're a Greek-speaking Jew uh, of the diaspora, you're going to use the word Pentecost because the Greek word penta, 50, cost, days. So the word Pentecost simply means 50 days. And so it's two ways of referring to the same thing. Our challenge in the Pentecost story is to see if for a few minutes we can peel back 2,000 years of later Christian tradition, which includes more than one myth, by the way, uh, and to use the surviving sources of the period. And by the way, we are blessed. We have multiple sources historically that are either contemporaneous or just before this period that give us wonderful insights so that we actually know if a Jew went to Pentecost in 30 AD, what they would have seen and why the, the, the symbolism of wind would have special meaning. 
and why the symbolism of fire would have special meaning and why when you say that fire separates and divides and sets on, on people's heads, that's actually Jewish tradition and carries special meaning. And when people speak and other people, in spite of language barriers, are able to comprehend that, that in fact is again part of the tradition. And as a matter of fact, all those traditions have the same source, not document. They all go back to one event in the past history of Israel that we want to look at. So our goal is to recapture the original meaning as a profoundly Jewish experience uh, with symbolism that is taken from Jewish tradition. So this morning, we're going to look at about five different ancient sources contemporary. So the end of the story of Jesus in the Gospels, which was last week, and the beginning of the story of the church in Acts, uh, are framed with these two Jewish festivals, Passover and Pentecost, <coughs> which are 50 days apart. Both of them take place in the temple, uh, Jerusalem, and by the way, both of them take place in and around the temple. So the temple plays a huge role. The disciples have been in Jerusalem for the pilgrim festival of uh, Passover. Remember, Jesus made a conscious decision, and he went early because Passover is not a day. How long is Passover? It's eight days. And so the disciples are there. That's where we get from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Uh, and all the events of Holy Week occur during the festival. Then not according to Luke, but according to Matthew, Mark, and John, the disciples then leave Jerusalem. They go back north to Galilee because that's where they're from. Uh, they experience some further resurrection appearances. It's again, something Luke admits for probably theological reasons. Two months later, as required by law, They've got to book back south again, back down to Judea, to Jerusalem, and to the temple because it's required. They're, they're males. Now, the three festivals are actually laid out in the book of Exodus. Three times a year you shall hold a festival for me. This is part of what Moses receives at Mount Sinai. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread, which is what? That's the Passover. Then you shall observe the festival of harvest. That's the one we just read about. You bring the first fruits of your labor and what you've sown in the field. This is Shavuot, weeks, uh, also called Pentecost. You shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year. So there's a later time in the fall when the last of the crops, depending on the time of year, it may be wheat, it may be barley, they come in at different times. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, and this is called tabernacles. It's also called booths. You build little shelters if you're a Jew. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So that's the law. Three times are required. So we're dealing with the second of those. The time frame is 50 days after Passover, 10 days after the ascension. So the disciples have been remaining in Jerusalem as instructed according to Luke, waiting for something to happen. I don't know that they know what's going to happen, but they're going to receive power. And, of course, in the meantime, the next Jewish holiday rolls around. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, if some of you have been reading <coughs> earlier in the book of uh, Acts, do you know about how many all are, roughly? <coughs> about 120, Luke says. Uh, so the, the movement has grown beyond just the 12. We know in addition to the 12, there were several women. There were others around Jesus. So probably uh, this number 120 could have literally been the group that Jesus came into town with. We don't know. But it's, it's up way above 12. 
suddenly from heaven, and, that, and all the things that that means, from heaven there comes a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house, flag that word. May, many scholars would say not the best translation. As a matter of fact, the last three Bibles that have been published in English no longer translate that word as house, where they were sitting. So they're, they're sitting around. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So originally we've got a harvest festival, and it's at the harvest festival they've come to when these type of things suddenly begin to happen. Uh, again, Exodus and Leviticus know, let us know this is a, uh, a harvest festival. What's interesting, though, and we did not know this until fairly recently then in the last hundred years, by the first century, the festival had taken on an entirely different meaning. It did not stop being a harvest festival. It still was. But a second meaning got added to it. Sometime, either during the exile or after they came back from the exile, all of a sudden, when they went to Jerusalem for this festival, they would bring their offering, but they actually did something else. And one of the books that we know of... Uh, gives us some insight into this. It had become linked to the Exodus story, and this festival became linked to a renewal of the covenant at Sinai. So this was the time of year when you come to Jerusalem, you present your offering, and you went through this special worship services where you recommitted yourself to the covenant that God made with God's people at Sinai through Moses. The book is called Jubilees. And uh, we did not know a lot about Jubilees, except there were 20, what, 21 copies found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. What does that tell you? Okay. Second only to Psalms and uh, Isaiah. Okay. This book was huge. Now, Jubilees is, was a part of a type of literature called um, reinterpreted scripture. What it basically does is it takes a passage of old scripture and it kind of expands it, it kind of becomes commentary on it. And it updates it. So the part I'm going to read you actually is the part taking the Exodus story about the creation of this festival and gives us an insight into how the festival had suddenly been evolved into having a whole new meaning. They should celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or if you're Greek, Pentecost, at this once a, uh, once a year to renew the covenant of Sinai every year. So about 100 years before Jesus at the last, this service had suddenly become to be a Sinai-oriented. We're going to go down there. We're going to rededicate ourselves. So the feast has got a twofold purpose. It's kept the old meaning. We're bringing our, we're bringing our harvest. We're going to dedicate it to God. And we're going to remember what happened at Sinai. And we're going to go through a special covenant service where we personally recommit ourselves to God and to what God did to us. And it's this link to the Sinai event that provides the key to unlocking the Pentecost story. Because what we're going to find is everything you find in the Pentecost story, guess where the only other place you find all those things is? When Moses was at Sinai with, and the revelation came. So a lot of images are being picked up from the story and are being pulled forward a thousand years later.
Now, you know that Deuteronomy is the second law, so you know that a lot of this story occurs two places. One is in like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the other is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is later, more, a little bit more reinterpreted. One of the interesting things is the Deuteronomy version has one verse that turns out to be critical. It mentions something that's not in Exodus, and it's this one verse that everybody else picks up on and runs with, because this is where all the imagery comes from. 522. These words the Lord spoke. This is at Sinai, God speaking to Moses, giving the law. As a matter of fact, this verse follows the giving of the Ten Commandments. So God has just given the Ten Commandments to Moses to give to the people. God speaks with a loud voice to the whole assembly at the mountain out of fire. And we get the idea that God's word gets transformed into fire and from the fire then it can be comprehended, the cloud and the thick darkness. So the literature of the period, and there's a lot of literature that survives, helps us understand if we were there 30 AD with the disciples or few decades later we're an early Christian and we're reading this story what would we been hearing what would we understand that's going on all the sources pick up on the Deuteronomy passage God spoke the Ten Commandments with a voice that could be heard one that came out of flame so let's see what they do with it you know Ale uh, Philo of Alexandria he is a contemporary of Jesus a contemporary of these events uh, he's a Jewish author uh, from whom many of his writings survive. He's actually in Alexandria in Egypt, but he's a contemporary. And he writes a lot. This is from his uh, work called The Ten Commandments. And he talks about his understanding or what the Jewish tradition says happened at this story. This is how he interprets it. First of all, there was an invisible sound. You could have heard it, but you wouldn't have seen anything. It was transmuted. You know what transmuted means? transformed, changed into flaming fire. So something that's audible becomes visible in the form of fire. Then from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to their utter amazement a voice. So a sound to a flame to a voice. For the flame became articulate speech and the language familiar to the audience Boy, uh, sound becomes flame becomes speech that can be comprehended and understood now Philo is talking about Mount Sinai and Moses but that almost reads like it came from Acts chapter 2 there's another rabbinic source uh, that adds that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, guess what? All the nations of the world heard it in their own language. And this is associated with the same story. This is a Pisha uh, from Rabbi Yonah. Now, the document we're looking at is actually second century, but everyone says that basically it's first century tradition that was written down later, so this is contemporary. The one voice at Sinai divided into seven voices. Seven, good biblical number. These into 70 languages. Anybody remember the what the term 70 meant in the ancient world? At least for Jews. Tradition said that if all there was the, the God's people, the Jews, and what's everybody else? Gentiles. How many nations of Gentiles do you think there are? 
70. So when you say 70, that means everybody else on the planet, all of them. So one voice divides into seven. The seven becomes 70 so that everybody in the world can understand so that all the nations heard it, each in their own language. Now this is all part of Jewish understanding of the Sinai then, what went on. Now tongues of fire, not tongues of fire, tongues as of fire, uh, is a term that emerged about 200 years before Jesus and suddenly appears in the literature. And the first book it appears in is the book of Enoch. Remember that book? Um, now this is the part where Enoch takes a, a visionary trip into heaven and he sees the throne of God, which, by the way, is made of crystal, and he actually gets to see God. Guess what God's going to be described as? Tongues as of fire. So this is contemporary. He translated my spirit to the heaven of heavens, and I saw there, as it were, a structure built of crystals. He describes the palace, crystals, and he describes the throne of God, crystals, and then between the crystals, he, he works his way, it takes about four chapters, but he works his way to the very center of it, tongues as a living fire. And this is the way he describes the presence of God there. So all the images in Acts chapter 2, if you're Jewish, are familiar. And they all go back to the same story in the Bible, which is the story of Sinai and the revelation of God there. And the covenant that God. It's interesting. P uh, Pentecost had become a what festival? It was a harvest festival. It became a what festival? Yeah. And a rededication to the covenant of Sinai. And then every image that Luke's going to describe are also associated with the Sinai story. And so it's, it's all starting to fit together. We've got a great wind, we've got fire, we've got fire dividing and setting each person, we've got speaking, we've got speech being understood by all before Pentecost ever happens. This is all there, and it's all part of this story that's remembered at Pentecost. So, do you remember when we used to have the miracle of Pentecost over here by North Park? The artwork? Some of you moved to Dallas too recently. It burned. Remember the story of Pentecost? The miracle of Pentecost? Yeah. Uh, the original miracle of Pentecost was 1,000 years before Acts 2. The miracle of Pentecost, when all this stuff happens, is at Mount Sinai with Moses. That's when this stuff first happens. God speaks through wind and flames. Everybody hears it in their own language. Now, I'm not saying that, that Exodus says that, but Jewish tradition had begun to say that about the Exodus story. So even the gift of the Spirit that enables people to speak, guess where that comes from? This is also from the Exodus story. Uh, do you remember the, the part when God called Moses at the burning bush? And there needs to be a book. Moses, 35 reasons why God couldn't use him. You know, remember that? All of his excuses. Do you remember what his last one was? Can't speak. God says, I got a fix for that. Zap. I put my spirit on you and you have the power to speak to Pharaoh. There's another interesting story in Numbers. Uh, do you remember when Moses got to complaining to God that he was just overworked and underpaid? You know, and just, I mean, the Hebrew people complaining, griping all the way from Egypt into the promised land. It was bad. Then we get this wonderful story. 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, guess what they did? They started talking. Okay. So again, this business of the gift of speech linked back to the story. Those there that day knew these symbols. Uh, they knew they connected to Sinai. And by the way, one of the things that Jewish people did is they lived in the hope. This is, part of re this is part of redoing the covenant. They lived in hope that this type of thing might indeed happen again. So now Luke continues. He's, he's given us all this symbolism that, that would have been clearly understood uh, by telling us uh, who experienced this in the revelation of God. Now offhand, do you remember who was there that day? At Pentecost. We haven't read it yet, but the disciples are there. People from all over the planet. But not just anybody from the planet. Uh, his language is very re revealing. First of all, Acts 2. Now there were devout Jews. Okay. In this story, we're all Jews. Which means we're where in the temple compound? We're probably inside the barrier where Gen Gentiles cannot cross. Now, the Gentiles being included among God's people is probably the most dominant theme of the book of Acts. But not yet. At this point, we're all Jews. From every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, do you know anything about why Jews from all over the world would be living in Jerusalem? You been to Jerusalem? Okay. There, what is on the, between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, if you've been there, what is there 10 trillion of in that valley there? Graves. Because one of the traditions of Judaism is when you die, where do you want to be buried? Okay, you want to be buried in Jerusalem, facing the sunrise. So when Messiah comes and the resurrection, you're there, ready to go. And by the way, what is one of the handiest, dandy ways to guarantee you're going to be buried in Jerusalem? Retire there. Okay, <laughs> move there. And this has been true for thousands of years. Okay, uh, so we got Jews, every nation under heaven. They've been living in, uh, you know, who knows where all over the world. But we know even back in this period, one of the things Jews would do near the end of their life is they would move back to Jerusalem. We even have synagogues they've excavated, uh, the, the synagogue of the freedmen and then synagogues to Greek-speaking. You don't need to speak Greek, really, in Jerusalem, but you do if you lived in somewhere else and you've come back. Uh, at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking now, Luke's language is, is precise. And this is one of these things that's very easy to miss. Each one heard. This is not speaking in tongues of 1 Corinthians passage. This is hearing in tongues. Okay. He's going to tell us this three times. Each one heard them speaking in the native language, amazed, astonished. They ask, are not all these people Galileans from up north? You can tell because they have funky accents. And how is it that we hear, second time, each of us in our own native language? Parthia, where the heck is Parthia? Today we would call it either Syria or Iraq. It's to the east. It's the Parthian Empire, the one that gave Rome fits. Uh, I think they lost four emperors for that. Elamites have no idea. Oh, Elam, yeah, uh, in contemporary Jordan. Mesopotamia. 
Judea, Cappadocia. Have you ever been to Turkey? Dead center, Cappadocia. Pontus, little northern Turkey. Asia, which probably means even further east. Pergia, Pamphylia, I have no idea where they are. Egypt, know where that is. Parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Cyrene was not, not, uh, not, not Cyprus, or, uh, but it's actually a, a, a what we call Libya today. Visitors from Rome. So these haven't even moved back. They're just temporarily there. Collectively, what were they? They were Jews and they were proselytes. Now, what's a proselyte? Yeah, it's a Gentile who converted to Judaism, submitting to circumcision, the whole, they keep Torah, they keep kosher, the whole nine yards. They are Jewish converts. They, you know, they, they've come over. Uh, Cretans. Now, when I grew up in West Texas, that meant an ignorant person. <laughs> <laughs> no, from Crete, from Crete. And we got Arabs, probably from down in what we call Saudi Arabia today. In our own languages, we hear. This is the third time he's told us that them speaking about God's deeds of power. Mays, perplexed, we've heard that before, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others sneered and say they're filled with new wine. Uh, again, we've got devout Jews from all over the place. Uh, they are all what we would call Hellenist because particularly in the Eastern Empire, what is the language everybody speaks? Yeah. Now, if you're in the West, you would speak Latin. But even in the West, Lat Latin, uh, Greek was the universal language, and Latin would slowly become more important in the West. Uh, one of the issues, where did Pentecost take place? Now, if you go to Jerusalem, your guide's going to tell you this is where it took place. This is the, uh, this is the upper room. Uh, and then your guide will carefully tell you there's a plaque over on the wall that says this was actually built in the year 1200 and something. So, but the place where tradition says, you know. Uh, and again, this is a common understanding. The assumption is that this is the same upper room that's mentioned in chapter 1 with the Matthias story. We elect Judas, uh, but if you really follow Luke, uh, it just doesn't, you, you can't make it say that. Luke tells us they're all together in one place. He's already told us there's 120 disciples. So if they're all there, I've been in that room. 120 will work. You've got to have odds breathing in, evens breathing out, but it, it, it'll work, you know. Moments later, Luke tells us in the story that the Jews were present from all over the world, and then he's going to tell us of which 3,000 are going to be converted. We're assuming not all of them are converted. Now, that room's starting to get a little crowded, okay. So the question is, is there a room in Jerusalem that will hold 3,000-plus people? Or is there whatever that word is that he uses? Uh, and there's only one place in Jerusalem. It's a place designed to hold this many. And it's the outer, it's a courtyard of the temple, which is designed to hold many, many thousands of people. The question is, is that what Luke is actually saying? Because that's not what your Bible would say. Uh, Luke has actually told us this already. He said the sound filled the entire house. Um, most traditional translations use the word house. The last three no longer use that one because it is misleading. Uh, the word is oikos, uh, and that can, be, can mean house. Uh, for example, uh, it can mean, uh, we get the word economy from this word as well. It can actually mean uh, a household. 
but it also means a building, any building in the world. It can be the Colosseum of Rome. That would be a building. Or it can mean temple. So the word oikos means house. It means building. Or probably here, it means temple. Does it make sense if they're actually in the temple? That that many people can actually fit. Each heard in their own language. Of course, this is the whole point of the story. Uh, that God's spirit is now moving in a very powerful way. God's doing very something very specific. Uh, again, what's described is not speaking in tongues. That's the issue Paul deals with in Corinthians. It is not the issue that Acts 2 deals with. It's, uh, and they're not speaking in unknown languages. They're, they're speaking and more likely being heard in languages that can be comprehended. So it's not the issue that Paul struggles with. Uh, but the issue here is that the barriers of language which, biblically speaking, have existed since Babylon's story, the Tower of Babel, uh, that those barriers have now come down. And by the way, when you start listing all those countries he mentioned, you know, there's 70. We mentioned, what, about 10 or 12? Okay. Why those 10 or 12? Guess what story in the Bible the same 10 or 12 come from? With one or two exceptions. The Babel story. So the whole point of the story is the confusion that was created at the tower is undone at Pentecost. So that it links the two stories together. Uh, you can go back and read Genesis 11 and compare the list. It's just pretty darn. It's not exact, but it's uh, pretty striking. Barriers of language symbolize uh, even greater barriers. Now, s many of you have seen this before, so I'll hit this real quick, but some of you may not have seen it. One of the things that's happening at this particular time in Israel's history is this growing idea that we must, to be God's people, we must be separate. We must put walls and barriers that divide us off from the non-Jews. So you remember what these, uh, remember what these were, right? You know, Gentiles can come in to a certain point, but beyond that, if you enter, what happens to you? You die, literally. And that's what the sign said. We have the, the letter of Orestes, which is, again, another source in this period, uh, refers to that Moses surrounded us with unbroken palisades, iron walls. Why? To prevent our mixing with any of the other peoples in any matter, to prevent our being perverted by contact with others. And so this is that prevailing period. So the fact that the story is set probably, most likely, in the temple even gives it more power. Because the temple actually has physical things there that divide off and say so you can't go. This is one of two stone tablets that was archaeologically found in the late 1800s, written in Hebrew, written in Latin, written in Greek, and it's the stone that says if you pass this point, you're dead. Uh, so the very structure of the temple gets more and more restrictive as you go in. Uh, so what does this mean? Ground zero for barriers and the message is the barriers come down. The primary barrier being language, but it's not limited to language. It's, it's in the book of Acts. Now, Peter's going to link what will happen to a prophecy from Joel. We're not getting into the, the actual speech. Uh, but you remember that? Uh, the coming of God's spirit on what? All flesh. I think Fido and Fifi get included in this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. So Joel, 
Know that I am in the midst of Israel. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Now, that implies not just Jews. Luke hasn't gone there yet. But will he go there? You better believe he's going to go there. From there, Luke, uh, Peter's going to transition to what God has done in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And for Luke, the ascension. And the point in Peter's speech is it's what Jesus did that knocked down the barriers. And so all the imagery of the story goes to barriers between people coming down. God's making a new covenant just like he did at Sinai. Uh, and it will become very quickly clear in Luke as we, as we roll forward with Acts that this is not just about the Jews. Uh, very quickly, the disciples who were present at Pentecost will begin to say weird things like, you remember this from Ephesians? For Christ is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, in, in Ephesians, as Jews and Gentiles, into one has broken down the divine. This is probably a reference to that actual physical wall in the temple that Christ has knocked it down. That is the hostility between us. Or you remember this one from Galatians? In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. By the way, all those had walls in the temple as you move forward. They're all going down. The rest of Acts, we're not going to do all of Acts, we're going to be skipping, will systematically unpack how what happens at Pentecost has implications, has ramifications, wall after wall after wall down. Next week, we're going to hit a little bit on chapter 3, which is the paralytic who's not allowed in the temple. And then we want to hit uh, the first uh, wall barrier, Hebrews and Hellenists.